0: Us to make the most of our time so that we may he grow in wisdom down to teach us to make the most of our time so that we may he
1: grow. Greetings. Welcome to Two Days, Denarius. I'm Ron Thomas. Well, it's good to be back again after a few weeks away. I have to say, over those last few weeks, uh, it would be good if you go over to YouTube and watch my most recent three videos, uh, which discuss a controversy uh, brought up actually by Beth Moore, uh, who seems to always want to try to stir people up, gaslight in some way, shape, or form, and. Uh, this time she went after Jonathan Edwards, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which is probably the most famous sermon uh, in our history, American history, that is. And so I actually took three of my videos, took time to basically defend Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God from an exegetical, uh, reasonable, logical sense of what Jonathan Edwards presented was both biblical and logical, it does make sense, and it certainly is in line with the attributes of God as well. But having said that, Beth Moore started that fire, and next thing you know, we have a revival event that started at Asbury University about 12 days ago, and so now the controversy is coming and talking about Uh, is this revival real or is it fake or is it a show? And I've actually spent three and a half days watching live streams as much as I can find them of this event. And I actually have a series of my own observations on the Asbury revival. But as we talk about this too, uh, I think it would be good at the beginning uh, to explain what a revival is in general. And you know, for what I have seen through the years, and I do want to say uh, I have studied extensively, actually from the time I was a teenager, about revival and, and what revival is. Now, in regard to looking at revivals and looking at significant events that affect Christians, and we don't often see real revivals. Uh, we, When they do happen, and Certainly, is something like this that's not only happening now at Asbury. It's also spread around, and I know of three other schools. One is Cedarville uh, College. I'm not sure. Maybe Cedarville University now, and I can't remember where that school is located. It might be Indiana or Ohio. Uh, Samford University, and that one uh, school is in Alabama, and there's a Lee University out there. But I'm also hearing, and I've heard reports today, that it's spread to other places, and one of the Samford administrators said it has spread to uh, 23 other colleges and schools out there. So there is something happening out there spiritually right now. The significant question is, is it real? Does this type of event line up with the way God has moved in significant ways in the past? And even in line to what's happened in our spiritual history in America, because our country has had numerous revivals, uh, some that affected the entire countries, and and some have happened more in sectional uh, places. But there are things they have that are in common, and I think a problem that we have right now is many people are acting on their own theories of what revival is, what it should be, and what it should look like. And they're really misunderstanding uh, that a revival can come up in various ways, in various forms. Uh, There really is no cookie cutter uh, for what a revival is. So I just want to say to you, um, I am going to seek mentorship. And that's one of the reasons why I brought Beth Moore up and what she and what she said about Jonathan Edwards, uh, I am going to use Jonathan Edwards. There is no greater person in church history to look to, to look toward for a good answer on what is real and fake than revival than Jonathan Edwards. He wrote about it, he studied it, and he was part of two major great awakenings and became basically the greatest defender of the First Great Awakening in the 1740s. So I would think Jonathan Edwards, having lived it, being a man who studied it from both a biblical and a human perspective, and how revival affects our religious affections, I think it's appropriate to look to his works. Uh, I have looked and read and studied about revival since I was a teenager. I have read plenty of Jonathan Edwards. On the subject, uh, I have read Charles Finney. Uh, when I was younger, I was pretty impressed. Charles Finney did not think like Jonathan Edwards. Uh, I also looked at Asahel Nettleton, a great evangelist during the Second Great Awakening, who actually was Charles Finney's rival. Uh, I My graduate school thesis was titled The Invitation, which was about the history of altar calls and Altar calls were associated with revivals. So believe me, I have looked at and studied plenty of revivals in American history, and not a single one of them looks alike. But they were all significant works of God. So what is a revival? Well, arrive, I look at a revival, and I think this is an adequate definition. I didn't want a short piece because really there is a lot into a revival when those things happen, but I look at it as, a, as an unexplainable, significant move of the Spirit of God upon his people and the lost. It affects both saved and lost. That is important because in revival, the Spirit of God moves on his own people and wakes them up out of their spiritual lethargy They become excited to go share with the lost world the good news of Jesus Christ, and certainly their own spiritual lives are enriched with a new, seemingly brand new relationship with their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Revival is also unexplainable because we never know when, where, or why, or how it will happen. This was a basic worship service at a chapel at Asbury University. And I actually watched the message, certainly after it was posted on YouTube, and actually I encourage people to go watch that message. It's just a 26-minute long video, basic message, Uh, but it was on the love of Christ and how his love, we should manifest his love, Uh, and it talked about life experience and how the love of God made a difference in how we look at people, including our enemies. I like the sermon. It's not a sermon that I would have looked at and say, wow, that's a sermon that's going to spark revival. No, not at all. But that's the mystery of how God moves. God can use you and me in unbelievable ways at times. I don't want to say if we allow him to. Sometimes he just comes in and interferes. (laughs) We have our plans for the day. And then God steps in. And that's why I look at what happened at Asbury University this day, which the chapel has basically been filled and there have been hundreds of people outside that chapel for days and having a wonderful time in the Lord. They have a screen outside where people can watch it out there. There's much praying going on. Uh, It it seems to be almost like a heaven on earth right now. Like I say, I'm obviously watching. I've been watching it from a distance. Uh, I have my thoughts, which I will share. You know, when Jonathan Edwards wrote his famous work, The Distinguishing Marks of the Work of the Spirit of God. He wrote that sermon for a commencement at Yale College. It was called Yale College in colonial days. And that sermon was written to defend the First Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards was considered a new light. It was a battle between what was called the New Lights who defended all the things that were happening in revival? And there were excesses and things we'll talk about those. And there were also the old lights who thinks that things had to stay the same and that God does not intervene in His world the way it, uh, that was happening, that was manifest through that uh, Spirit of God moving in different and significant ways in the first great awakening. Now, I do understand. Jonathan Edwards is good at this because between 1734 and 1735, he wrote the narrative of surprising conversions in New England based upon the first significant revival that happened in his own church in Northampton, the Northampton, uh, Massachusetts colony at that time. Uh, They were unexplicable. I have read that, of course. Uh, There were inexplicable conversions happening then Uh, People being converted in the middle of the night, in the middle of the day, uh, they would be at home and the spirit of God would fall upon them. There were around over 300 people saved out of a 600-member congregation at uh, Edwards Church during that period of time. It was a period of, of a glorious time. However, it ended in 1735 when Jonathan Edwards' uncle committed suicide. It was really that particular event that brought about the conclusion of that aspect of revival in Jonathan Edwards' church. Now, there there are things that can happen that would stop a revival. And I could tell you one that happened when uh, the great contemporary Christian musician Keith Green was alive. And one time he had a concert at Oral Roberts University. And during the time when people, it, he had always prayed for revival to happen. And what you see happening at Asbury, what was was happening during his concert, people were coming forward. They were praying. People started giving testimonies publicly. And this went on for a long time. And it was really, uh, he was feeling God's presence like he never had before. Well, what happened after time, one a male student got up, was giving a testimony and gave testimony to particular sexual sin he was involved in. And as he was giving this, one of the school administrators stepped in and said, son, son, we can talk to you about it, but we have to end this now. And Keith Green wrote uh, and said that he felt the Spirit of God move away at that very moment in time, and hence what could have been Asbury at that time. In the 1980s, uh, it just died off and in a moment of time. So there are things that can happen that can stop a revival. But in the end, it's an inexplicable event, significant move of God. We don't make the call on when it happens. We don't make the call on when it stops. In general, it is associated with the prayers of faithful people who prayed for it. Can revivals be prayed for? They absolutely can be. And actuality, just about every revival in history has been traced to people or somebody who was doing some serious praying for such an event to happen. So yes, we can do that. And that's just something that we, you and I, now in this time span, we need to pray for God to continue to move in the revival at Asbury and some of these other places that I mentioned. We need revival fire. The first that most people quote when they're discerning revivals. Uh, actually, Jonathan Edwards did this same thing with his sermon uh, distinguishing marks. First John 4:1: Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try whether they are of a God because many false prophets are gone into the world. And I do think it's very fair to look into and check and assess the revival at Asbury University. Now, I'm just going to talk a little bit um, about what I've seen at Asbury so far. And it's for a while, I thought it seems to be a singing revival. I was continually seeing the congregation sing. And I think part of the issue why that happened that way is because this was a new event. It's not unusual for new events for a school administration like this to let things continue in a decent and orderly way, as it was there for the most part, and uh, decide how they were going to proceed. Because the first day I watched, I was just saying, oh, this is a singing revival. That's the way I felt about it for a while. Then I'd say, well, really, if it stayed that way, I would question whether or not it was a true revival. But that's not the way it stayed. Uh, During the second day I watched, I saw people giving testimonies. All the testimonies were respectful. I did, by the way, see the video of the demon possession and the casting out of the demon. Uh, I don't know if that was a true, real event. I mean, it, visually it was. But I do not know, you know, people. some people think it's real, some people think it's fake. I haven't seen anything like that since then. I think if the school, if it were to happen now, I think they would take the individual involved into a different room and attempt to exorcise the demon or to see if it's not a, a medical issue uh, with whoever it is involved, it's uh, you know being affected by such an event. So I did not rule it out, and you're going to see a little while later why even an event like that does not disqualify this event from being a true revival. I did like very much that the music has been very respectful. No celebrities. The beauty of this thing is there have been no celebrities. They are not letting uh, celebrities co-op this revival. The musicians there, they gently play basic guitars, piano, uh, sometimes sing hymns. Yes, hint, hint, let's sing hymns in our churches again. And sometimes uh, they'll sing some of the modern day worship songs, but nothing certainly lends it uh, to rock-type Christian music, things like that. I commend them for that. Uh, it's been very such something that's really allowed uh, for a true worship atmosphere now there's a couple of songs I wish they didn't play reckless love uh, God is an orderly God there's nothing reckless about God I, I think that title and I think the use of the song I've heard it it's hideous uh, sometimes we get songs like that in our modern worship times but other than that I that does not exclude it from being a true revival uh, people can be seen at the altar at prayer. When I've seen cameras pointing in the direction of the altar, and I was looking closely for that, there is somebody always at the altar p- praying, multiple people. And that is something that we should see in a revival event. Uh, it's been a good thing. People can still be seen. Whenever, I'm having problems with getting live stream after the third day of watching this, but... Uh, And all the time I saw that, there was always somebody at the altar praying. The school leaders, like I said, kept the celebrities at bay. And they would not allow the uh, the event to be co-opted. And the other thing that happened on the second day that I watched, they started having a preaching service. They started having uh, a lesson, a real ministry. It was balanced now because... With all the music and worship that they were doing that way, they are now hearing uh, messages from Scripture, and I'm glad that they included that in there. People need to hear the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. Uh, if we are going to see people saved, then we are we need to be getting the Word and the Gospel out in message, and and then that started. Uh, I. I'm active on Twitter. I've been watching so many outlandish comments about this revival. And one of the big claim is the gospel's not preached. Well, they haven't been watching. The gospel has been preached. Like I said earlier, the people have their own view of what a revival is. So they're focusing on their own t- mental template. And there are times when preaching is not involved in revival, which one example I will tell you about uh, ahead. The event's been very respectful. Some might consider it boring watching them just sing. They're saying, "Oh, come on, this is nothing." Well, no, you got to keep watching it. I'm sure for the people who are there and that people, some people came thousands of miles to attend this event at Asbury. I doubt very seriously it's boring to them at all. Preaching is not lacking. This is I made this list before I watched further to see what was going on. Uh, the word was shared. When the preaching happened, uh, it seemed like a lot of people kind of left the chapel. That's not good. If you're only there to sing, uh, that's, that's, that's a little problematic. Stay and hear the sermon. But that does not disqualify it from being a revival. There, there is never a perfect template for revival. And by the way, everybody who is in that revival and attending it is imperfect as well. So that's, once again, but preaching is happening. So again, the people who are saying that do not have ammunition to say there is no preaching there. Now, basically, what kind of topics bring revival? You know, if, there, if I were to be in that type of event and be preaching during that event, what types of, of preaching on what type of topics uh, would continue to, let's say, uh, continue to fuel that revival? Well, preaching on the cross. I'll tell you about an event when I was in Iraq in 2003, Good Friday. I don't know what happened that day. My sermon was on the cross. What else are you going to preach on on Good Friday? And in there, it was such a significant warming feeling, a different presence I have never felt while preaching. And I really preached that day with an an unction, kind of a power that I've never had before and never had since. I had to ask somebody if they felt something different in there after that message. And this particular surgeon said, yes, I did. There was something in there today. And you know, on Easter Sunday, I was hoping it would happen again. It was a wonderful sermon on Easter Sunday and a wonderful service. But I didn't uh it, it wasn't the same thing that happened on Good Friday. You know, sometimes God comes down in that short moment of time and manifests his presence in a special way. And that's what happened that day. But you don't know that. We we don't know when God's going to do those kinds of things. And we don't put God in that kind of box. We pray for rain, we pray for his love to fall down upon us. But, you know, he does that in his timing. Preaching on Christ's excellency and glory. Preaching on Christ's excellency and glory. You know, when David Brainerd was a missionary uh, to the Indians, and I say Indians, he lived in the 1700s. He often preached on sin and damnation to those Indians, and he didn't have results for a long time. But when he started preaching on Christ's excellency and glory, that's when late in his ministry, the revival started taking place. So it's always a wonderful thing to preach on the Christ's glory and his excellency. And you also have to preach on condemnation and eternal punishment. Certainly sinners in the hands of an angry God had not only impacted that congregation he preached on or preached to in Enfield, Connecticut in 1741, but eventually spread that it was published it, it, in the colonies and across in Europe. Many people got saved, even out of the print version of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, preaching on sin in our fallen state. People need to know and understand what they're being saved from. It doesn't make sense if we're not preaching for conversions. And certainly helping people understand that we have rebelled against God and are in a fallen state, and there's only one person who can bring it out of that, and that's Jesus Christ because of what he did on the cross, and he died for our sins. Preaching on the second coming of Christ. When have you heard a sermon on that? It's been years for me, and preaching on the second coming when I was younger was common, but it seems like people, we as Christians got to love living in this world, Well, Jesus is coming soon, and the fact that the church is asleep right now is more of a sign that he's coming again than we realize. And preaching on revival itself, breaking up your fallow ground. I remember that sermon from Charles Finney when I used to read about it many years ago. had a sermon titled, Break Up Your Fallow Ground. And, you know, it's time to break up those things in our lives that are clogging us and hindering us from following and serving Christ. But let's go back to Jonathan Edwards because I want to go and talk about his distinguishing marks here. Now, Jonathan Edwards, like I said, wrote much about revival. Distinguishing marks, surprising narr- narrative of surprising conversions. Another one, a treatise, treatise on religious affections. One of the greatest works of his, in my opinion. Uh, if you haven't read the treatise on religious affections of Jonathan Edwards, you need to, because once again, he was a student. And that one is more about the result of revival, which is conversions. If you read that, you'll know whether or not you really truly know Christ or not if you read the religious affections. But uh, all of the works that Jonathan Edwards did on, uh, put together on revival and on conversion, they all work as one. Some thoughts on the revival that he wrote around 1746, Uh, that is a great work of his, too. All of these things are good. Uh, I really enjoy and learn a lot from reading Jonathan Edwards, but I don't see any better mentor when it comes to revival to read than Jonathan Edwards. You know, one of the things to have to look at, too, because... In the end, despite the flaws in humans and and revival events, uh, Jonathan Edwards knew about many of the things when the the revivals were going on in his day, some of the extremism and certainly what the adversaries of revivals were trying to do. He saw that, but he was still revivalism's greatest defender during the First Great Awakening because he basically battled on two extremes. One is an enthusiasm. And what I mean is there was a character at that time named James Davenport who was definitely somebody who was causing all kinds of havoc in churches in New England during the time of the First Great Awakening. He would basically go around into churches and make all kinds of noise. And he was very famous for claiming that he could look at anybody and tell if they were saved or not. How ridiculous. How, how ridiculous. And he was also famous for going around and naming just about every clergyman that he ever met or ever heard and listened, you know, listened to uh, as unconverted in New England. This guy was a real, really, really made all kinds of antics and noise. He was warned many times about his behavior. Uh, he was an ordained minister, but one day it caught up with him because. One night they were having a book burning in New London, Connecticut, uh, so, so people could get rid of things that were definitely uh, unspiritual. And James Davenport really went over the top and took his clothes off during this book burning event in New London. And he was serious, he r- lost his reputation after that. I will say the good thing of what he did after that is he confessed that he was out of order. He fell under the care of ministers who certainly taught him and helped bring him back to some kind of service uh, for the Lord. But all of that time in his pride and what he was doing, he caused great damage. You know, during revivals, the devil has his agents that he will put in in places to stop a revival or interfere with the revival. Uh, to slow down the effects of revival. And, you know, if I were to compare anybody to James Davenport today, uh, I would look at uh, two of, two people in evangelicalism today. One is Todd Bentley, and the other one is Todd White. Todd White not as active now. I think he's got health issues. But those two are two people who would try to cause... Uh, great damage, and not realize it because uh, they're already serving somebody else, and they don't realize it. Uh, But Todd Bentley did attempt to go to, and he did go, uh, uh, to the Asbury University revival, but they were certainly not going to let him do anything, say anything during that event, so he really just wound up taking a photo op there or two and left. So my commendation to Asbury University for keeping the celebrities at bay. There was another group that's fairly radical that tried to get involved with Asbury as well, but Asbury turned them away. No need to say who they were. At this point, let's take time to take a look at the legitimacy or illegitimacy of a revival from the point of view of Jonathan Edwards. As they are written From the Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God, famous work of his uh, that he wrote, and a message that he gave at the commencement at Yale College in 1741. It was called Yale College then, so don't say I didn't know it was Yale University. I do know that very well. I have visited that campus multiple times. So having said that, Jonathan Edwards was brought there and Jonathan Edwards kind of turned the tables on the school because the administration of the school, the top, the top, the president in a sense was Thomas Clapp. but there, they and the rectors were he and the rectors were hoping that Jonathan Edwards, you know, would try to cool down the revival fires, you know, pour a bucket of water on them and settle these students down because they're getting caught up in this fervor. Well. George Whitfield was around then. Gilbert Tennant was around then. There were many sound preachers on revival then, and many of the students there were getting caught up because they were hearing these men preach, and they were getting caught up in the revival fires. Well, that was just out of order to those who led Yale College, and they were hoping their finest graduate, Jonathan Edwards, would rein this all in. Well, they were in for a big surprise because Jonathan Edwards did not fulfill their expectations by any means. So let's look at his work a little bit and what he said. Jonathan Edwards, when he gave the sermon, he basically said on the marks, there are nine marks that neither prove or disprove the legitimacy of a revival. So let's just go through those and see what they are. One, is that the work is very unusual or extraordinary. So, yeah, that is. Okay, something's happening there in Asbury. It is, and it's probably real. But it doesn't mean the revival's real. It's common to all revivals. So when you look at this event, it doesn't mean it's legitimate or illegitimate at all. Ah, here's another one. That it produces bodily effects on participants. Now, note that I mentioned demon possession earlier. Jonathan Edwards say that, that kind of thing happens during revivals. It happens at other times in churches as well. But it, just because people, uh, unusual emotions, shoutings, and things like that, they can be common in the revival, they can be common in churches. It doesn't prove or disprove a revival. That it makes religion the talk of the town. Hey, Asbury is being talked about across the nation in churches now. What's happening? It's actually spreading in churches and other colleges at this time. That's great. But it doesn't prove or disprove its legitimacy. They're going to say, well, what does? We'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. The fact that it excites people's imagination. Imagination is something that we can have on anything, anytime, anywhere. And I looked at watching many of the people at Asbury and they're really into raising their hands uh, in worship, and it's, it's a beautiful thing to watch. But that happens in common, ordinary worship service as well. It's not a proof of legitimacy or illegitimacy of this revival. That it produces great imprudence or irregularities in conduct. Okay, guess what? Bad things happen during revival sometimes. Bad behavior happens during revivals sometimes. Imperfect humans are involved in revivals and in the height of emotion and religious fervor, sometimes inappropriate things happen during revivals. Just because a demon possession and uh, uh, exorcism, so to speak, takes place does not prove or disprove, disprove Is that a bad thing, is a good thing? You know, the fact of the matter is we weren't there, so how do we know? Or I'll tell you about Cane Ridge Revival, 1801 in Kentucky, outdoors. This revival, when it started, 25,000 people were involved with this revival. But believe it or not, there were some immoral acts going on during that event. But it doesn't take away the fact that that revival had a huge spiritual effect for the good. In that area, Cane Ridge was in Kentucky. But there was great imprudence and irregularities at the time until the people who led the Cane Ridge revival put order to that event and started preventing things from happening. And that's what I want to say about the school at Asbury. They needed time to coordinate how they were going to proceed with this revival, when they were going to have testimony times. I'm not talking about immoral here. This is different. But since this thing happened, it was a surprise event. It was sudden. They needed time to prepare and plan when they were going to do things like testimony times, when they were going to have somebody preach the word. And many people who call themselves discerners on Twitter, uh, overly discerners, Decided to attack the revival unjustly before those people had the time uh, to do things like plan for have uh, preaching there, organize testimony times, and things like that. Uh, I think it was unjust attacks. And I have made comments to many of them uh, saying that you people don't know what you're talking about, and what you're saying does not disprove or prove this thing's illegitimate. Can't always change people's minds that way, but it needs to be put out there that uh, you guys are making errors in your own judgment about this event, and you haven't even watched enough of it. One of them said, I watched 13 minutes of this event, and it's illegitimate. (laughs) How can you not laugh at that? That's foolish. That really is. I'll tell you what Jonathan Edwards said about that type of attitude and approach later on here. So... But the school got that together and things were in a sense a little more organized but they were still worshiping serving and loving God during this event. All right, another one is that it is accompanied by great errors and judgment and delusions of Satan. I already touched on that. You know what, sometimes mistakes are made during revivals. Sometimes I said bad things happened during revivals. But it doesn't there is no perfect revival. A revival takes time to know whether or not it's real and see the significance of that event. So another one is uh, that some of the converts subsequently fall into error and scandal. Uh, Yes, well, what happens to church sometimes? We think somebody receives Christ as their Lord and Savior, and next thing you know, a few months later, or even sometimes they never come back after the first time they said they were saved. You never see them again. Or sometimes people who got saved all of a sudden did something or got involved in Acts, and uh, next thing you know, uh, they bring disrepute upon the church. Well, that neither proves nor disproves revival itself because that happens in common, ordinary churches as well. All right, number nine that its ministers offer too many warnings of God's wrath. And that's basically saying that's too many preachers out there preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God-type sermons. Well, I do believe in preaching the full counsel of God. And during the First Awakening and the Second Great Awakening, there was a huge amount of preaching on, uh, on hell, on hellfire, in fact, whenever they went out there, they were always scaring people uh, to out of the fire, you know, really. Uh, I say in this time, we don't talk about uh, eternal fire enough. People, I think, are comfortable in this world and and, and think everybody's going to go to heaven, and that we know that's not true. But did they preach too much on it? I can't answer that. But there are different kinds of messages that can't ignite God to work in unique ways, but that's how God works. But certainly, eternal punishment is a biblical doctrine. And obviously, these people found that that was the most effective way to get people to respond. They could have preached on the second coming of Christ, and maybe that would have done something, but at the same time, there is an urgency for the lost to come and receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So, I think it's very fair in revivals and even in our churches today to preach and to warn sinners of the road they're on. Uh, we need to be doing it. We must preach for conversions, regardless of we're preaching on the excellency of Christ, the second coming, heaven, eternal punishment. We need to be preaching the good news and preaching for the lost for conversions. Now, Ash Edwards rationale for all these nine, and remember all nine of these, these are not reasons to dismiss a revival. And just about everybody that I read on the Twitter sphere and other places who were against revival all landed in these nine. Obviously, they obviously did not read distinguishing marks. And they obviously have never been part of revival, so they don't know what they're talking about. Jonathan Edwards gave this. These potential realities are not signs that we are to judge a work by, whether it be a work of the Spirit of God or no, because having precedence in both Scripture and in human history, they have at times been present in genuine movements of God, false revivals, and even secular events. As I said, All of these things have even happened in churches. You can't dismiss them. So, having said that, let's turn the page and look at what happens during a true revival. True. Number one, authentic revival will raise the esteem of Jesus Christ among the people. People are going to love Jesus more. And we get to number five, we're going to see that people love each other more and love people in general more. Yes, it should. It's it's a time where we feel a unique presence of God, and we are drawn to Christ. It's a sweetness, like one of Jonathan Edwards' favorite words. It's a sweetness of the excellency of Christ in our hearts and souls and minds. That will be seen during revival. I have seen many people on video and stuff with joy at the Asbury Revival. So is that a good sign? Absolutely. Ah, here's another one. Our lives. If any man or woman be in Christ, he or she is a new creation. And in that new creation, it should do, number two, work against worldly lust and sin. It should build us up to be able to resist temptation more. If we want to serve Christ, we must learn to live lives of separation, lives of holiness before him. It wakes us up to that. Number three, I like number three. Increased respect for the Bible. I gonna love the word of God more. I would really be concerned if people involved in a revival did not want to hear the word of God preached more, and if they did not start reading their by reading their Bibles more, I would really be concerned about that. Because if God is at work in this, these are the things that should be at work in the hearts of the people who are affected by such an event. And then another one, solidify God's truth in people's minds. You know, sometimes people who are lacking assurance, some people who've been backsliding, uh, many people could just be following the Lord in unique ways. Uh, When they get hit with the revival, And they get hit with a presence of God like they've never felt before. It changes them. It changes your life. So solidify God's truth. God does unique things during these revivals. And, you know, there are many people at the event in uh, Asbury who have been giving testimonies. Testimony time. You hear one after the next of significant thing that God was doing in these individuals' lives. You can't dismiss that. And then you have number five is produce love for God and others, which is really tied into number one, because if you raise the esteem of Jesus among the people and we glorify him more, we're going to love the things that he loves, and our love for him is going to grow, and it's certainly going to grow in the uh, horizontal sense toward others. So it works vertically and it works horizontally. Now, Edward said in his writing that these plainly show the finger of God are sufficient to outweigh a thousand such little objections as many make from oddities, irregularities, errors in conduct, and the delusions and scandals of some professors. So the, those first nine, they neither prove nor disprove. And the ones, the five, this was a man who saw multiple revivals, uh, we should listen to what Jonathan Edwards had to say. And this man was no enemy of revival. He was revival's friend, and he defended defended it. He defended God's work, and he knew that God always, in his world, can affect this world in unique ways. We should be thankful for that. Many people speak so negatively of Jonathan Edwards. Well, Why don't you look at his writings on revival and you won't be so negative about him. Probably be thankful for him. He was so serious about revival that during the Distinguishing Mark's sermon, he gave the sincere warning to those who actively dissented that they were in danger of committing the unpardonable sin by knowingly attributing a work of God to Satan. Jonathan Edwards looked at what was happening during the first great awakening as a work of god obviously and that faculty and the leaders of yale college did not like what he said when he said that in particular so battle lines became drawn and jonathan edwards he really laid down the gauntlet and said don't don't call a work of god a work of satan and whatever you believe about whether the unpardonable sin can be committed in these days or not, Jonathan Edwards obviously took that passage seriously as one that people could commit, uh, certainly in his time. And you know what? It's, I don't know why it wouldn't be possible. That's why when we judge things that are happening in this world and unique things about revival, you got to be careful what you say you better know what you're talking about. It's always good to know and look at revivals uh, in history as well. The last thing I want to give on this is just to tell you a little bit on the survey. All revivals don't look alike. Some people got on them and said they expect, oh, there has to be preaching there. There has to be this, that, and others there. Oh, there's only singing there. People have their own mind what a revival should be and what a revival should look like. And you're doing this and you're putting it in a box and saying God only works in this way. God isn't going to work uniquely in this other way. Uh, This is completely untrue. Let me just tell you from what I know in my history, I saw one Twitter feed said, revivals only happen in churches. Well... This individual did not know George Whitefield and the Wesley brothers very well. Church of England would not let them in there come preach in their churches. Where do you think George Whitefield and John and Charles Wesley preached? Obviously outdoors. Obviously, yes. And they did the same thing in the colonies, outdoors. One of the big, huge sermons, 20,000 people. Waiting to hear, including Benjamin Franklin, waiting to hear George Whitfield preach. I believe it was on Market Street in Philadelphia. By the way, Benjamin Franklin loved to listen to George Whitfield, although he was never converted. Well, that was outdoors. There was no church that would hold twenty thousand people in that time. Another one. I'll give you a second example: the Great Prayer Revival of 1858, led by Jeremiah Lanfear. In New York City, Jeremiah Lanfear was so burdened by the immorality and what was happening in New York City that he decided he was going to rent out a space in an empty building, and just set up a time each day for people to come by and pray in it. It didn't start out big when he when he began, but all of a sudden it quickly swelled to tens and to hundreds, and actually wound up being a national revival. And by the way, that great prayer revival was not built on preaching at all nope if people wanted to give testimony or exhortations from the word of god they had five minutes on stage to do it and then when the bell rang they had to get down and that model was followed, followed across the nation and it wasn't happening in churches either how in the world do you say that uh they have to happen only in churches well that's not true this is what people do. This is what they what they say. Cane Ridge Revival I spoke of. That was out in the open country, out in the open fields. And we also had some revivals revivals here out on the West Coast like the Jesus Revolution. Th- those revivals don't they didn't necessarily happen in a church. In fact, they happened in weird ways. Maybe the Jesus Revolution may have started there, but many of these revivals, Azusa Street, it's called Azusa Street for a reason because it happened outdoors. I don't know why, and I can't explain why God does, even though on my mind, I think some reason why something like Asbury happened. Because look at the spectrum of what's happening in Christian churches, evangelical churches these days. We know that by surveys, around 41% of the pastors preaching evangelical pulpits don't even believe in the inerrancy, authority, and infallibility of scripture. How's God gonna use that? These megachurches playing secular music, offering people entertainment like that to come to their services. That's a circus, and they're not even preaching messages uh, for conversion for people to come to Christ. So what does God do in a sense? Well, he uses a new means and method to wake people up. I don't know the mind of God. But I do know the church in this country today is very ineffective. And it breaks my heart to say that. But we have to look at the reality of the spiritual state of our country. And the last big survey that was done by Lifeway, Lifeway and near Ministries is horrible news for the church as it is today. I could give you a list of churches where it's very clear they've departed Uh, from the true doctrines of scripture. I'm not going to do that here, but I'm just letting you know it's real. So having said that, let's pray. I would like to conclude that just to let you know that, be flexible on this. One of Jonathan Edwards' great conclusions, basically Jonathan Edwards said, do not make an a priori judgment against revivals do not make it be your knee-jerk first reaction to say this is not real and you know some of these discerners they already had it on their mind that this is going to be fake they didn't take time to listen to watch and see what was really happening they did a priori and they certainly would fall under the warning that jonathan edwards gave of attributing a work of god to the devil Jonathan Edwards would not agree with what they're saying. And you know what? I let them know that. I let them know that they needed to read distinguishing marks for marks before making such comments. Now, what he did argue for was an a posteriori. If I said that wrong, forgive me. A posteriori, I think that's better, judgment. Based judgment on the actual results over time. These are based on actual observation, and that's the way we should do. The impact of a revival many times is not seen for years. I do pray that we have revival fires happen with Asbury, Samford, Cedarville, Lee. I heard that many people were saved at the University of Michigan, uh, Michigan, my home state, i rejoice in that if people are getting saved coming to know jesus christ as our lord and savior that is something that we rejoice over so that is the survey that is looked. there's much more that can be said much more to be studied i but you know i can only do this in one broadcast and i just want to encourage those of you who listen uh Pay attention to what's happening at Asbury. Pay attention if something comes in your state or your church. Pray for rain. Pray for the revival fires to spread. And, you know, pray for the Lord. Put that circle around yourself and say, Lord, rain upon me. Lord, bring revival to me. Because, you know, we individually with the Lord, Christian, if we want to get close to him and stuff, you know, we have to take time. We have to do the praying. And, you know, sometimes the Spirit of God calls us to do that. So let's pray that this is a significant work of God. And let's do our part. And if we're not following the Lord and the things he calls us to do, even the basic things, like attending a church on Sunday, like Bible reading stuff, it's time to pick up our game, believers. It's time. Thank you for listening to Two Days, Denarius. I really hope that this podcast is encouraging to you. I really hope it's something that gives you hope and something to pray for, that we might see the rains of revival continue to burn as they seem and appear to be happening at Asbury and in other places. And who knows, it may show up at your church. So thank you again, Uh, God bless you, and we'll look forward to another broadcast in the days ahead. On Two Days Denarius, I'm Ron Thomas. To
0: make the most of our time so that we may he grow in wisdom to satisfy us in the morning with you. so that we may see for joy to the ends of our life.